This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you and calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that's qxmd.com apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast series. Today is a pop-up podcast, and I'm speaking with a special guest, Miranda Claussen. I'm Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. And today our guest, Miranda, is uh, maybe well-known to some of you. She is a patient-turned-patient advocate and fierce warrior for amniotic fluid embolism. And we're going to be talking all things amniotic fluid embolism today. For those of you who are not familiar with Miranda's work, she's very active um, in the advocacy world. She founded the AFE Foundation, the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation. She participates in the California Maternal uh, Quality Care Collaborative. She works with ACOG on their Council uh, for Patient Safety. She reviews maternal morbidity and mortality reports for the state of California. And she's a co-author on 11 publications, and she's co-authored an AIM bundle for uh, support after a maternal event. Um, So welcome, Miranda. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. We, uh, this is the first time we're actually having the opportunity to interview a patient survivor um, turned advocate. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how you, uh, who you are and how the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation kind of came about? What's your story? Oh, thanks. Uh, you know, I was just, just like any other woman, I was just interested in having a family. I always, uh, say that I, I just wanted to have a baby. Um, in 2008, I was excited to welcome a baby boy and, um, uh, unexpectedly suffered an amniotic fluid embolism during his delivery. Uh, it actually happened in labor, uh, before he was delivered. Um, so I'm incredibly grateful to the swift action of the team, um, here where I delivered in San Diego, California. Um, Shortly after, you know, kind of awakening from uh, a coma, um, being told about an amniotic fluid embolism, having never heard it, it's, you know, it's obviously complex in nature, but it's even just those words, amniotic fluid embolism, to a lay patient are very confusing. And coupled with, you know, their explanation of what had happened was this is extremely rare and most women don't survive. So I think that initial seed of survivor guilt was planted that day. Um, and then of course, you know, um, not being able to see my son right after delivery, it was days before I had a chance to meet him. Um, shortly after coming home, realized I needed to better understand what had happened to me, what the long-term, my long-term health future looked like. And going back to my early college days of doing research and publications, I knew I needed to get to maybe some of the clinical information. And so I spent some time at the library and, um, started seeing, several publications just about, you know, just underscoring exactly what the physicians had told me and the nurses had told me was that this was often fatal um, and it was really complex. And so I was surprised to find there wasn't any research, current research going on. And I was even more surprised to find that there wasn't an organization that was supporting families. I knew it was devastating to our family and we had the most positive outcome you could imagine of, you know, both my son and I surviving. Um, during that search, I also found a a family in the state of Utah and she looked just like me. And I I actually read a blog post by her sister, um, and she had, her and her son had perished. And it was sort of that moment there in the library reading about 
how complex it was, how devastating it was. And then literally seeing a picture of a woman who looked just like me, where both her and her son had died the same week I had delivered. That was it. I just sort of said, I think everything at this point leading up to this point has allowed me the fortitude and ability to be able to do something. And so sort of that day, July, it was the week of my birthday, because that was all I wanted for my birthday was a day to go to the library and read and not, you know, be at home caring for my son. And so I reached out to some um, critical care MFMs who were in most of the publications, Gary, Gary Dildy and Steve Clark, and said, hey, this is my idea. Would you support it? And I found myself on a plane flying to meet them uh, a month later. And, uh, you know, here we are 13 years later with a robust organization. Wow. I mean, that's quite a story. I, you know, most of us, when we deal with a patient who has, uh, you know, first of all, I think most of us would assume, not my, not me, but many of our listeners would assume that, uh, that you can't be a survivor of an amniotic fluid embolism, that there's this misconception that amniotic fluid emboli are 100% fatal. And then how could you possibly know that you had an amniotic fluid embolism? So what would you say to people who tell you, how do you know you had an amniotic fluid embolism? You lived. Yeah, subjective, you know, having a subjective uh, health complication is always challenging because there's no gold standard diagnosis. Our community of roughly 1,500 women across the globe uh, underscores just how much this is an issue. They are often not heard. They are often dismissed, uh, almost snickered at if they meet a new clinician and say they've, they've had an AFE. For me personally, it was something that I grappled with. You know, I'm obviously well-read now. You know, I'm totally dedicated to this. So I, you know, when I look at diagnostic criteria, I recognize their subjectivity. But when I look at having read, you know, roughly four or 500 cases, you know, I had the classic triad of, you know, hypotensive cardiorespiratory collapse, full arrest asystole, and then followed by, you know, hemorrhaging and DIC. And so it was that classic triad that sort of, um, makes me feel better, but I know that there's atypical cases, and I know that women do uh, feel unheard when they explain this. Um, you know, I think the latest research just shows that although it is subjective that women do survive it, uh, we've had so many advances in critical care medicine, um, transfusion, mass transfusion protocol, new medications like uh, TXA that are helping women survive. And we also know that AFE is a spectrum disorder where you have really catastrophic, where we can't even get these women back. We can't achieve ROSC quickly. Um, and so there, there are survivors. I've laid eyeballs on thousands of them. So I know that they exist and I know that they are there. It just is also um, really just affirms the fact that we need to find diagnostic criteria. We really need to find some sort of laboratory testing so that this is no longer this sort of false idea. Right. And I think as a clinician, both physicians and nurses, we struggle with this because, you know, when you, you know, when you look at cases that get submitted as everybody's convinced it's an amniotic fluid embolism, and when you review it, there's often other explanations. So it's frustrating for us too, to not, not be able to do a diagnostic test. So you know, what are, what's the foundation doing to try and move this forward? Well, thanks for asking. I, I think identifying that diagnostic criteria would be helpful. One of the things that we tried to achieve to do to limit, um, to limit sort of these erroneous cases being out there was to make a recommendation, a global recommendation, which has been adopted to say, hey, let's not post single case series. Let's not talk about just small case reports. 
where we're just looking at one or two or three cases, let's make sure that there are no other explanations. And going back to your previous question about, well, you can't be alive and that the only way to, to diagnose this is through autopsy. Well, we understand the importance of autopsy. The importance of autopsy is to help confirm that it wasn't anything else. The fetal squames in the vasculature um, are not confirmative of AFE. We know that fetal squames, you know, are in many of us. In, in fact, if you've had a child there, you likely have cell-free DNA still floating inside of you. It, it, it's a natural occurrence that happens. It's just some of us have this catastrophic cascade. So at the foundation, one of them is just administrative, right? Like asking clinicians and researchers around the globe to say, let's limit what we put out there. Let's ensure that this is absolutely a typical case before we get into the weeds of these sort of atypical, uh, very questionable cases. And then another thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to identify biomarkers and early signs and symptoms um, sort of uh, pr predicting an AFE. And so right now we have a biorepository with the National Institute of Health at Wayne State University that's led by Dr. Roberto Romero in collaboration with our research team uh, where we are trying to identify specimens of AFE. So for clinicians or you know for clinicians listening in if you have a case of of an AFE contacting us immediately is something that we can work together with you to obtain specimens that are so vital for us to say what are these inflammatory markers what are we looking at what's happening in these cases before they become symptomatic because we've we've seen in in previous studies that there's this very high level of TNF alpha that's occurring where we are asymptomatic we're not febrile we don't have discharge. There's nothing, no, no pain. There's nothing else that's leading to this. Um, and so uh, we have this new procedure where we're asking if you have a maternal arrest and, and even if you haven't gone through the differential diagnosis and you think it potentially could be an AFE is to pull a red top immediately during, during the arrest, during the MTP, pull a red top, have it sent stat to the lab, spun and frozen. So we're separating the serum. And we can deal with consent later. We can deal with the shipment later. All we need to do is pull a red top, send it to the lab, have it spun and frozen and set aside. Um, and we only need five to 10 specimens in order to do the study that we're looking for. But that's what we're doing currently right now in terms of our research and our, our research registry that we have. Well, I'm sure there's some listeners out there who can file that away. Uh, and if you have an arrest, uh, this is an opportunity to contribute to our knowledge about what's going on, even if you're not sure if it's an AFE or not. And you guys have a registry, right? So when you stopped, you know, had, did that call to action, I remember when that pu got published and came out and it was like, okay, these are the criteria. Let's all agree that this is a classic amniotic fluid embolism. And if you have cases of AFE or what you think to be AFE, instead of just putting it out as a single case series, please send it to the registry so we can start actually organizing and gathering data on this very, very rare phenomenon. So how many patients do you have in the registry now? We have about 200 cases. 150 of those have been fully, uh, fully chart reviewed and um, reviewed by, you know, clinician experts. I would say roughly 30% of our cases that we have in our registry would probably fall in the classic, uh, fall into this atypical case. Um, of the other 50 cases that we have that we haven't um, gotten enough data, it's really just about uh, records and having older cases. But yes, submitting a case to our registry, clinicians can actually do that. It's not a HIPAA violation. You can actually just uh, reach out to our, uh, our website and uh, visit our site and 
click on submit a case and you don't have to put the patient's information and then we'll follow up with the clinician and send them the enrollment documents. Um, we have not had any pushback from patients. They, I think patients and even um, families who you know lose, lose a loved one are, are very keen to want to help contribute so that other families don't go through this. Um, and it does, it expands our knowledge. We've been able to look at a whole number of things. We've been able to confirm that uh, history of allergy is consistent. Uh, we've identified some you know, correlations in terms of large baby, polyhydramnios, IVF, um, placenta previa. We've been able to look at some of those things and, and, and publish those findings. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that the AFE Foundation is really leading the way when it comes to advancing the science in understanding amniotic fluid embolism. I, that That's just, that's really not disputable. I want to hear a little bit more about the other arm, which is your patient support. I mean, that was, as I started to learn more um, about you and the foundation, I, that was one of the things that impressed me the most because... Those of us who have survived an amniotic fluid embolism event, and I'm and I'm talking about everyone who cared for the patient, the patient, the baby, the family. No matter the outcome, there's trauma, and I I know you you know better than any of us what that looks like. But what are you guys doing? I, I know you've got some great stuff to support families, and I want everyone to hear about that too, so that when you have an event. You know, what What are the resources available to try and get some support for this grieving family or traumatized family and patient and staff, et cetera? So tell us a little bit about what's going on there. Thank you. Because really, truly, the heart of this is is the patients and families and the clinicians as well. I think early on when I started this, I, I didn't have that, you know, that set of lenses that it was it, the clinicians needed support to, but they, they very, vicarious trauma is very real in these circumstances. Um, I we are an organization, but I would say we are a community and we are absolutely a family. I think that is what makes us unique and sets us apart is this uh, intersectionality where you have every walk of life, every continent, we have families that have been touched by this. Um, the support that we offer, so we have uh, approximately 14 different support groups. So they range from AFE survivors, grieving family members, widowed fathers or partners, uh, we have one for clinicians, and then we e even expand upon that, which is AFE survivors who lose their child in this process, AFE survivors who come out with their fertility intact and want to go on and have another child. Um, you know, I think that's also a, a, a group of women that are often unheard and sort of almost balked at, like, how could you possibly want another child, you know, after everything that you've endured? Um, one of the things that no matter if it's an AFE survivor or a grieving family, is just shock. Something that you, are, you know, you go into the end of the hospital healthy, you know, this is supposed to be the greatest day of your life and suddenly becomes either one of pure trauma or total devastation. And so I think it's shock. I think one of the things we hear from our families is we've never heard of this. And we often explain, you know, it's, it's rare, it's unavoidable, it's unexpected, even if we had told you about it there wasn't anything we can do. So let's turn our efforts into how do we help families um, sort of, I don't ever say recover, but walk them through their healing journey. Um, for our grieving families, it, it never gets easier. It doesn't. I mean, when you talk about birth trauma, you're saying now to this family who've lost a loved one, anyone else in their family, any of their friends who go on to have children, that's a traumatic trigger. 
Um, you have anniversaries and, and you have, when the babies survive, you have this ultimate timekeeper, this precious baby or babies that are the sort of the timekeepers of their mother's passing. Um, and so that's a, that's a challenge. Some of the things that we offer are support groups on Facebook. We also offer uh, a licensed clinical social worker uh, that's on staff that's available to help um, with birth trauma and getting them established into good types of therapy. Uh, we recommend EMDR therapy for grieving and for AFE survivors. We also offer helpful guides. And one of the things that one of our helpful guides offers is a AFE survivor patient clinical summary. And it's a very specific document that we are asking for clinicians to help this patient complete, which really just summarizes their event. You know, we come away with this and we have cardiac issues, pulmonary issues, kidney issues, uh, neurologic injury, emotional distress. We're, we've ha received copious amounts of blood transfusion. So now we're at risk of Sheehan's or other thyroid conditions and adrenal uh, issues. So uh, how do we try and avoid as many triggers as possible for these very young women who were otherwise healthy, who now have an army of clinician specialists that they need to go see? And so we're really trying to promote this continuity of care model because, you know, these women have been with OBs. They haven't been with their primary care doctors. So who takes care of them? So we've created this document um, and we hope that clinicians and nurses will help them complete and that they can take this to their future doctor's appointments to say, here's what's happened. I don't need to go overall, but here's how many units I received. Here's what the, you know, EEG results. Here's what my echo said. Here are just a summary so I don't have to sort of revisit that very complex time. And to be quite frank, most of us have no idea what has happened to us, you know? Right. I mean, I'm thinking this is the kind of thing that would be hugely helpful for any ICU patient, any critically ill pregnant woman. I mean, we as as physicians and nurses, you know, we spend a lot of time talking and we talk to families. And if the patient's able to communicate, we talk to the patients and, and educate them and and whatnot about what's happened. But the only thing that we really put into writing is the medical record, which is, you know, and if you try and translate an electronic medical record to paper, it's a disaster. So, you know, I think that's a really important point, something to summarize. And, you know, we may feel like we've, that's all we've been talking about. We've been telling, telling, this is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. But I never cease to be amazed when I'm going to round on a patient sometimes for the first time that I've met them, or maybe, um, maybe it's the first time that they've been conscious and aware to participate. And I'll say, do you, do you want me to explain everything? And they all, the answer is always yes. And they, even then they don't really remember that that cognitive impact, I think cannot be underestimated, you know, just the, the physical and emotional trauma of a critical care experience just cannot be underestimated. I think that's really phenomenal that you're doing that so that they have that record. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you talk about their, their postpartum, their post, yeah. their post trauma, if they've been mm -hmm. in an induced, you know, a, a state of sleep and rest, it, they're not necessarily getting REM sleep. So now they're exhausted. We're talking mm -hmm. about complex stuff. You know, most of these patients are not healthcare providers or clinicians. And in a state of duress where they've had high cortisol, high adrenaline. Um, and so we encourage families, uh, you know, we have people reach out to us when their loved ones are still hospitalized. And we say, take in a journal. And this is not a journal to like, you know, keep tabs on everyone. But it's really a journal to say, this is who I spoke with today. And this is what they said. Because one of the things that re-injures everyone involved including clinicians, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm 13 years out. My husband is now an ICU CCRN because 
you know, he was mo- he was very moved and inspired by our situation. He went from construction to now, you know, running an ICU is having to ask him multiple times, what happened? What did I say? What, you know, what did I look like? All of these questions sort of re-triggers him to revisit that time. Um, so, so yes, that postpartum visit, you know, after that at post-discharge, you know, we even talk about discharge summaries and, you know, it's a lot of information to absorb, you know, when you're trying to go home and, and hopefully they're able to go home with their baby. Many of the babies stay in the NICU, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot going, it's such a complex matter, you know, this life near death experience or tragically in these cases where there has been a fatal loss coupled with a, a newborn. Um, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there. And so our organization is really there to help them unpack it and to feel like they have a safe space where they can talk about anything from intimacy to their near death experience, to being afraid of going even to the dentist, you know? Um, so we sort of validate and normalize their experiences and we call it, this their home. It's, we welcome people to the sisterhood and we welcome families into this, into this family. I'm sure that our listeners are going to be happy to know that that resource is out there and they're probably thinking of their the own cases that they've seen and wishing they had known more about it at the time. What do you wish that doctors and nurses knew about amniotic fluid embolism? Because you know so much and I know you interact with a lot of doctors and nurses. I mean, you don't have specific medical training, but you are one of the most knowledgeable people that I've ever met on amniotic fluid embolism. And you know more than many doctors and nurses. So if you could think of just, you know, one or two things, what do you wish doctors and nurses knew about amniotic fluid embolism? I think maybe taking away the fear. It is, you know, often talked about that is the most fearful, most catastrophic uh, event. So one I would say is you know, listening to podcasts like this and and taking critical care courses so that they they understand that AFE is we don't know enough about it, but it is it's treatable in the sense of it's two two events that are occurring. They are complex, but right now all we're left to do is treat symptoms. So being familiar with maternal arrest and understanding left uterine displacement and the importance of a rapid delivery if it hasn't been delivered, coupled with massive transfusion protocol and under truly understanding. DIC in pregnancy and the nuances that occur. So I think those two things primarily is to sort of take away the mystery and say, we don't need you to understand all the nuances. What we need you to do is simulate these things, be be well-read, know that there's a foundation that can support you. Um, and then I think also is refreshing yourself on how to deliver bad news. When you go into labor and delivery, this is not something that's probably widely taught or understood. Um, I think we're better versed with the fetal, you know, fetal demise and fetal infant loss, which are also devastating. But I don't think delivering bad news about a severe maternal event or maternal loss is something that people are uh, feel comfortable, competent in. So I, I think um, being taking the time to read about it. Yes, it may never occur in your career or when it does occur, I will tell you it will be so impactful. You will never forget some of the specifics of that case. You will never forget that patient's name and you will never forget how you felt. And then I think also, I would just say a a message of gratitude that I'm grateful that clinicians take the time. This is not an easy field to go into. Um, It is long hours. It is, you know, greater and greater expectations. More and more women are coming in sick and challenged. 
So just being grateful to them and encouraging them to take just a little bit of extra time for continuing education and, and simulation. I think those would be my biggest, my biggest uh, recommendations. I would echo each one of those. Um, we do have podcasts on massive hemorrhage and DIC, and we'll be working on one for amniotic fluid embolism as well, if you want to go check those out. So Amanda, before we, uh, Amanda, Miranda, before we close, um, how can people learn more about the Amniotic Fluid Embolism Foundation? Thanks. I think visiting our website at afesupport.org is the best way uh, when you visit there, there'll be an option for clinicians to click on clinicians. But I would say also, you know, poke around the site and look at what we offer for our, our families and our communities. Um, and then of course, if you have grand rounds or you need speakers for events, we are always, always happy to uh, join forces with individuals like you and other MFMs who can speak on this and sort of couple the, the clinician information and um, treatment and pathophysiology along with, uh, really understanding the patient's perspective. This has been really, really great. I'm so grateful for you to take the time to do this with me today. I've really enjoyed our talk and I hopefully our listeners have learned more about AFE and about the AFE Foundation. We'll check you out. I want to thank everybody for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app, qxmd.com apps, or our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.